Welcome back to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Matt Sroka. I'm an associate editor for the Journal of Adolescent Adult Literacy. I'm also a clinical assistant professor of literacy education at Mercer University. Got a good show for you today. A couple of things real quick. This show is still young. We're still trying to grow. So if you all could do a couple of things for me, if you enjoy a particular episode, please share that episode on social media or with your colleagues, students, administrators, whomever. And if you do like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a review. This will help others find out about this quality podcast. So I'd appreciate it. Okay. So in terms of this episode, I acknowledge, I, I confess that sometimes my background of teaching secondary English shows up a little bit too much in my selection of articles that we then turn into podcast episodes. So today I'm going to try to kind of help rectify that. I'm going to move away from the secondary classroom. I'm going to move away from the adolescent learner. And today we will temporarily move into a community center and we'll look at an adult learner who is attempting to navigate digital platforms as she seeks to find new employment. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Jennifer Cobrin about her article titled Identity, Positioning, and Platforms, a Case Study of a Job Seeker in a Community Technology Center. This article, as usual, is free to read for anyone. And so if you just go to my show notes, there's a link for the article. Just click on the, on the link. It'll take you right to the article. You can read it for free. Uh, I, I strongly encourage you guys to check out the article. Dr. Jennifer Cobrin is an assistant professor of adult and community education in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She received an EDD in Literacy Studies from the University of Pennsylvania in 2023. Prior to this, Dr. Cobrin also worked for decades as a practitioner in education and adult education, most recently as Director of Digital Inclusion at the Office of Adult Education, City of Philadelphia. She is passionate about bridging theory and research with practice especially as it pertains to adults' learning and literacy practices in the digital world. Okay, listeners, so whether you work with young people or adults, I think this episode has something in here, a little bit in here for everyone. And I, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you enjoy this conversation half as much as I enjoyed doing this interview. Thanks for listening. I'm excited now to be joined on the Journal of Adolescent Literacy podcast by Dr. Jennifer Cobrin. Jen, thanks for jo joining us. I'm excited to talk about your article. I'm excited to be here. So can you, let's get started. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into this work? Yeah, um, so I am, uh, for many years, was a practitioner in adult education. And so, um, which is kind of my story of the question of how I got into the work as well. Um, I worked uh, managing a number of community technology centers in Philadelphia. Um, these are places, if you're not familiar, where adults might go to like look for jobs or just simply use the internet. As we know, you know, obviously the cost of internet is super high um, in many parts of the U.S., and so they provide access and some, in some cases, kind of like digital literacy classes. And so, I, as part of my work as a practitioner manage a number of these centers and would provide professional development and things like that. And so I was always kind of like in them and visiting them in different neighborhoods in the city where I work, but, but never having the opportunity to really like sit 
in one center for a long period of time, you know, because my job mm-hmm. was more administrative. And so um, when I went back to school to get my doctorate, I became really interested in kind of this ethnographic vantage point of like what would happen if I could just sit in one of these centers um, for a long period and just kind of observe what was going on. Um, I became also interested in job seekers because I feel like there's a lot of research on kind of workplace identities and our professional lives in jobs, but not quite as much research, particularly in kind of our field of literacy studies around like people's identities and literacy practices as they're looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of part of it as well. Yeah. And your article brings up so many interesting ideas related to adults um, and technology and and all that. I'm excited to get into it. So um, can, can you talk a little bit about the background of your study uh, who who was the participant, a little bit about the participant and where the study took place. And um, just can, can you kind of set the scene of your study? Oh, yeah. So the scene <laughs> is it's 2021. We all, many of us, you know, don't assume, just got vaccinated, maybe. It's spring. Um, I had a newborn baby at that time who was two months old. And I'm trying to figure out a site for this study for my dissertation. And I really wanted to do it in person because, um, you know, this, I wanted to work with low income, uh, marginalized job seekers at a community technology center, many of whom maybe did not have like access to internet. So doing this over Zoom was not really, like that was not really what I wanted or could do with the research yeah. questions that I had. And so um, I started just through like personal networks, trying to find one of these community technology centers that was open. And of course, you know, again, we're like in the thick of COVID, it's mm-hmm. 2021. Um, some schools are even closed. And so, uh, you know, I, I just, again, started calling around and there was this one center um, that had opened recently, just like, I think when I, when I first talked to them about doing the study, when I first approached them, they like had, ju- they're like, oh, we just opened two weeks ago. <laughs> um, and they really needed help with a lot of adults were coming back to look for jobs because mm-hmm. people had gotten laid off during COVID and were like, just, you know, things were just starting to open up. And so um, they were like, can you uh, come volunteer here? And, and I was like, yeah, you know, and that, that was really got it kind of this question I had around adults experiences, like adult job seekers experiences with technology. And so that was the site. And so, you know, we're all in this, um, computer center and uh, computers are like pushed around walls for social distancing. And we're like all wearing masks, you know? Um, and so I would go once a week and um, just a volunteer as part of this research study um, to work with job seekers. And, um, and I also just want to point out that it was um, a research study. I did get approval for IRB. And of course, every time I was there, I would ask um, participants for consent. So I, I certainly had like a, it wasn't that I was just like hanging out. I certainly right. had a formal, you know, consent process and tried to be ethical in that way. Um, but of course the city was ethnographic. And so I did do a lot of just hanging out there. And so early on, I think I was there for about six months from like June to December or something like that. Um, Amanda started to come and she was this older woman. Um, she had been, you know, laid off during COVID, like many of these individuals and was just looking for help and looking for, I think, you know, help applying for jobs, but also just like all of us kind of some social connection. Um, And so, and she would come pretty regularly. A lot of the other adults 
would come, you know, maybe a few times or once. Um, and then I wouldn't see them again, but Amanda and I kind of developed like this social connection. And I think she also just really liked, you know, like I did kind of getting out of the house, Mm -hmm. um, for our weekly session. And she also came another, um, another day of the week for like the, they had a digital literacy course as well. And so we really, um, yeah, that's kind of how it, how it came to be. And, and she ended up having some really interesting kind of critical incidents, um, in the way that, um, she was using, uh, technology. So it became part of this article. Yeah, that's, that's pretty remarkable how that worked out for you. I, I was doing my dissertation work around, around the same time. A lot of my colleagues work as well. And, um, my cohort that I was with and, um, several of us were working in schools and it became really hard like, to get in school systems. Um, even when schools opened up, they weren't very welcoming of outsiders go going in given the uncertainty in, in the state so that you found an opportunity to not only have a place open, but that they actually welcomed you. I think that's cool how that really worked out well for you. Yeah. Um, and I just, I also wanted to say that, um, I think it was a testament to the the staff too. I mean, yeah. they were a really small staff, but I think um, they were pretty amazing people. And I think they just saw the need in the community and they were like, people need to print things out. Like small business owners need to print documents so that they can apply for COVID relief so they can survive. And it was really like this matter of survival in the community. And there wasn't another space at that time where people could come and, and do those like really just everyday like critical needs. And so yeah. it really, again, I think it's just a testament um, to that particular site as well. Yeah. And, and the and the important role that community centers play in our society. Um, so that's cool. So you, you focus on um, this participant, Amanda, and uh, you kind of in your article, uh, which is, again, I'll remind listeners, the article is Identity, Positioning, and Platform, the Case Study of an Older Job Seeker in a Community Technology Center. And this article is linked in my show notes. It's free to read. So um, I encourage you guys to take to, to take a look at it and read it. But you uh, center kind of your article around two vignettes. And they both kind of involve a little bit of uh, Amanda feeling kind of discriminated against. Um, can, can you unpack the vignettes and kind of talk about, I'm, I'm curious this also from a, a little bit from a researcher perspective too, your decision to kind of share out your findings through these two stories, kind of what was the decision making there? And then what these two stories revealed about Amanda? Yeah. Um, you know, I was really, I think it was kind of both from what I was reading, you know, in our field at that time, and then also kind of the way it unfolded in practice. I think, um, in terms of what I was exposed to in the literature, Glenda Hall and Jessica Zacher Panda have a really interesting article that they did like a number of years ago in a workforce development program that was similar, not exactly the same as my site, but similar, you know, context. And they, they studied these like performative moments that emerged, um, these, these moments of intense creation, um, or kind of like realization of self, um, drawing from other scholars. And so I became, you know, I, I kind of saw that article and became really interested in like these just moments of like intense identity work, um, that happen in the context of, you know, applying for jobs, which really is kind of a emotional process. You know, mm. when you think about um, going on the job market, it really does have a lot to do with like, we question, you know, our identities and are we good enough for like these, this labor market, particularly, you know, people that are marginalized, like Amanda, who was an older, you know, mm. job seeker. And so, um, so I think that was one thing. And then I think these moments also emerge, like just looking back at 
the five months um, that Amanda and I had together, there were these two, like almost like these, just these critical incidents where, again, it was like this intense identity work on her part to kind of negotiate um, the technology platforms uh, that she was experiencing in those moments. So they really like stood out to me as well. Yeah. And, and they, they both bring up, I think, elements of Amanda's past and her past identity and now kind of her current identity and her trying to figure out this platform and how to use it effectively while also being aware of kind of her past experiences. Um, so yeah, I think they're two really interesting stories. Um, so let's kind of unpack them a little bit. Um, you, you talk about how the platform Amanda was using influenced her experience. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about that, unpack this idea of the platform she was using and um, how specifically using you know, technology and applying for jobs, how that did impact kind of her identity and how she positioned herself. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, I'm saying that because um, what I, I think like a, a key finding in the larger study, and this was certainly true for Amanda, was that, that like some of these job search platforms just made it really challenging for people yeah. to find jobs. And one of the things that they did is they would like bombard um, job seekers with these like marketing emails, you know, yeah. and, and it just to find the actual emails from like employers or um, the state unemployment site became like this, this um, wild goose chase sometimes in people's email inboxes. And so it just, it, 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 in a lot of ways, I think made for a negative experience. Although of course, mm. you know, how else do we look for jobs, right? It's like this paradox of technology, like what do you, you know, obviously technology makes job seeking a lot easier and faster. Um, and so I think it just, um, it also revealed some of this lived experience that I didn't know she had, right? So when she got in the first incident, um, Amanda gets like this very sketchy email for, for folks that haven't read the article and it, um, although I assume all of you listeners have, but just Damn. in case, pause, um, pause the episode, go read it and then come <laughs> back. So, uh, Jen's story will have more context. All right. Go ahead, Jen. Exactly. exactly. Um, and so she, you know, she receives this, you know, I don't think it was necessarily like illegal what they were doing, but they, this, this email used her name and it was like, Amanda, um, this company is applying for jobs and the, you know, they'll pay you X amount an hour, you know, and then she clicked the email. She knew like something was up, but she was kind of like showing me like Amanda was no fool. You know, she was like, this yeah. is weird, but she showed, she was like, let me show you what happens. Cause she had gotten the email at home and she was like, look, and it goes to this, um, website and uh, it asked for her like birthday. They were like, enter your birthday and we'll send you more information. And she was like, no. So I think it, it revealed the the kind of like some of the slippery slope um, between legitimate and problematic for a lot of these job search platforms. But it also revealed kind of like Amanda's agency. And and so this, this um, caused her to talk about this whole story about how she um, was working at in this corporate HR office that I didn't really know before this incident happened. And she um, was very familiar with like labor laws because she said that sometimes um, people would try to discriminate against um, like young moms who are in, working in this um, company in retail chain. And um, she really was like their advocate. And because of that, she knew a lot about like labor laws and HR. And, and so that fed into like this email and, and it's, 
whether or not it was legal. And she knew like all these resources. She's like, I'm going to call the Equal um, Employment Opportunities Commission and things like that. Um, And I was like, wow, this person, you know, even though she herself would call herself kind of a, like a digital beginner with technology, she had all of this knowledge about like labor law and HR that she brought to the table in kind of confronting um, the scam. Yeah, that was the first incident. Yeah, that's really cool. And that, well, first of all, you mentioned about the emails and I totally understand it. I mean, even I got this job a year and a half ago and I applied some places and I still get like emails from, I don't even know who about jobs, right? And, and I can't get them to go away. Um, and so I get that. And also like just the position of being a job seeker is just stressful inherently because you're searching for a job because you don't have one or you're trying to change jobs. And so there's something stressful about it. And then you add, especially with um, people who are new to these digital platforms or who don't feel comfortable in these digital spaces, um, it's you can't. It's really difficult to apply for jobs without going through these digital platforms, and so you're already kind of in this stressful situation. And then you get these emails, which increases the stress because you don't know what's legit and what's not le- le- legit. Um, and so all that is just I'm str- I'm getting stressed out, Jen. Just hearing you talking about the experience. Um, but it, it's very cool that she could kind of draw upon her past and um, not just kind of passively say. Like, oh, I don't know why they want this or not just pass with put it in, but like that she questions it and she uses her experience and she addresses it. And um, as a uh, former high school English teacher, I'm thinking, man, I wish some of my students right had that same approach to when when digital platforms ask for personal information to, to question it, to wonder why they're doing it. I think um, we become too willing to give information at times. And so I appreciate Amanda's uh, skepticism. I think that's pretty interesting. And I, and I wonder, um, I, I wonder if, uh, well, I know why perhaps our young people are less skeptical because they lack the experience, right? It was her past experiences that provided her with the, with the knowledge to say, no, I'm not just going to put in personal information. Uh, so, which means to, to my next question, your study is kind of a reminder of how we utilize our past experiences and multiple identities in our literacy practices. Um, in your study with Amanda, and then maybe we can even expand this out to, to adults in general, how can we, um, as researchers, as educators, how, we, how can we kind of leverage these identities and past experiences to, uh, to help the people we're working with to improve their literacy skills? Yeah, I think that's a question, right? Um, That is the question. (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of it just has to do with like, how can we as educators make this, make this like really like an, what's an algorithm? I can't see an algorithm, right? Like um, these very, like almost like these theories or these, these very like um, conceptual vantage points, make them real for people, you know? And, and um, it just, it makes me think of, and we often, our first instinct is to think of like the affordances of these technologies. Um, in another project I had, I was working with a practitioner and he's talking about how great Google drive is, uh, for, uh, education in general, and particularly for adults who are low income because it's free. Right. And you can mm-hmm. store documents, but as he was talking, he was like, you know, Google Drive is great because it's free. And then he kind of stopped. And in the moment, he was like, except, you know, it takes all of your most personal information. 
Um, and I think it's just, again, like creating these reflective opportunities where people can develop an awareness. Um, and, and also, but also I think our job as educators is like bringing again, like things like abstract terms, like datafication and privacy, um, to life for people. And I don't necessarily have answers, but that is, I think that's going to be kind of the focus of um, my next project going forward and kind of like an ongoing line of inquiries. Like again, in these, like these spaces, like these community technology centers and, um, digital literacy classes, like how can we like bring these, these ideas, like these very abstract, but important ideas, you know, to life for people. Um, the New York times called the iPhone and it was like the most sophisticated tracking device ever made by the hands of men, you know, so it's like, how do we like, these things are important. Like, how do we make them real? Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's for adolescents and adults right there. Cause I think, we do a pretty good job sometimes of like teaching them or teaching people how to use tools, di- digital tools. And honestly, people are, I mean, a, a lot of these digital tools are intuitive and people are really good about figuring out how to use these technological te- technological tools. Um, but I don't know if we have enough conversations around things like privacy and, and uh, what they're doing with your data and why that matters. Um, and I don't think we have enough of those conversations. So, yeah, I appreciate it. I think when we talk about digital tools and digital literacy, part of that conversation should be kind of critical media literacy as well, right? And um, kind of why this stuff matters. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I will say is just coming from the adult context, like, you know, Matt, a lot of times, particularly in the context of like adult basic skills classes, what I've seen is like these, these technologies are not intuitive and we all learn mm. that. Right. Mm-hmm. And we forget that learning process. Um, I was in a digital skills class this past weekend and, you know, there was a woman there who was having some problems just getting the computer on because the laptop was like different than the one she had at home. And, and we kind of forget like our own, you know, I probably would have struggled in that context as well. And it's like these, you know, are these, are these devices intuitive, you know, to begin with? And then as you were saying, like, how do we, given adults kind of struggles, some adults, you know, obviously adults are diverse in their abilities. Um, uh, but some adults also, you know, struggling with these basic skills. And then how do we add on top of this, this kind of layer of like critical media literacies, I think is those two things are so important. It's like, how can we make them fit together and happen more than they're already happening, you know, in adult and in use spaces as well. Yeah, Jen, that's a great point. I appreciate you pushing back against me with a little bit of that, uh, these being intuitive because I, I mean, it happened to me not maybe two months ago where I was asked as part of my professional responsibilities to create a budget on Excel. And I'd never done a budget before, but I just agreed to it because like, ah, I can do a budget. Uh, and then I opened up Excel and I realized at that moment, I had no idea, no idea where to even start, what to even like plug in anywhere. Um, and so I had to, to draw upon some some other resources I had as in other people who've done this thing before and asked them, how do you do this? And we sat down and we figured it out. But, but yeah, that's, that was not intuitive to me at all. <laughs> a budget on Excel. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah, it's an ongoing process. I think for all of us. Um, and it's also, I think another thing I ran into um, in this study was like how contextual, you know, like we know that literacy practices are so contextual. Um, mm-hmm. And so for uh, adults in youth that maybe like they just don't like a computer is not part of their daily life because it's not 
part of like what they do for work or, um, you know, what they do for pleasure, then it like that, that makes it harder, you know? And it, again, it's not that like adults are lacking in skills or ability. It's just that like, maybe some adults that I worked with, they really only used Microsoft word when they were like, um, making a resume cause they had to for a job, mm-hmm. but otherwise they didn't, you know, they were not someone that like wanted to work in an office. Um, and so, and I shouldn't generalize and I don't know like these adults, like wives, but, oh, yeah. um, like what they were doing every moment of their lives. But like, that's another thing is like, these practices are so contextualized, you know, to, like our interests, our abilities, our values. Um, you know, so it's like, how do you teach critical media literacies, um, in light of that as well? Yeah, I mean, we see that all the time. I I think about at the kind of, I'm sorry to bring it back to adolescence, but um, you see teachers sometimes struggle with, well, how come these kids don't know how to, you know, copy and paste on on Google Docs, but they can make this elaborate TikTok video. Like, how can they do this one thing, but they can't translate it into the into the classroom because they're different platforms and because maybe they lack motivation, but they're not, they haven't been explicitly taught how to use kind of different platforms because you done one doesn't mean all of a sudden you're you can handle all these different platforms exactly uh, and maybe they're not like super excited about cutting and pasting <laughs> right yeah. in the way that they would be for like a tiktok video or something else that had like more meaning in their lives yeah and so something that goes back to motivation certainly someone like amanda right had the motivation to kind of figure this out because she's a job seeker and trying to find a job and that's pretty strong motivation um to go back to amanda for a second i also um i think I really appreciated in Amanda that she kind of combined that she didn't like put her past identity and past experiences on the shelf when dealing with this technology. Right. I think sometimes when we're dealing with something new or something that makes us a little uncertain, um, it's easy to kind of ignore all our strengths, ignore all our other identities, ignore kind of all experiences and just kind of throw up our hands and rely on someone else to kind of help us through this because we've never used this technology before and we don't know what's going on. But that's not what Amanda did at all. <laughs> Amanda kind of used her past experiences to say, okay, even though I'm using maybe this new platform that I'm not familiar with, I do have experience in this field that I can bring in to help me navigate this um, and help me cr- think critically about this. And I just, I appreciate about that about Amanda so much. Yeah, and I think um, one thing that I wanted to say about Amanda, she's an amazing person, is like she was kind of what I would consider almost like an everyday activist. Um, Mm. And and when I first met her, she was like, yeah, like, you know, I just like to help people. I'm not saving the world or anything, but, you know, it's just, and so she was involved in all these different, you know, causes. And she was just constantly, like, she wasn't someone that necessarily, like when a, a life challenge or barrier like hit her um she was someone that would just work on through it in in and you know and and I think um that just speaks to like her identity and who she was as like a she was just like a problem solver you know she was a parent she had had this whole career you know overcome a lot of you know I'm sure challenges barriers like in her work life and her personal life and just um brought those skills and resources to bear, you know, in dealing with this. And I think, um, you know, I'm really interested in older adults experiences with technology more broadly. And I think that speaks to like why I love this population because older adults have like so many lived experiences and they've just lived it and they've lived through so many challenges. So like when it comes to getting a predatory email, they're just like, okay, like, you know, not to generalize again, but just, um, you know, they, they just, they have like such rich lives that they can they can bring to bear. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, you you talk about in conclusion about, and I want to read a little portion of conclusion because I, I I love this and I want you to kind of unpack this, um, unpack the, the, the this idea of um, of problem solving and collaboration as opposed to um, teacher learner binary. So let me just read um, a little bit from your paper and then have you unpack this for me. Um, you wrote navigating these complex multiple layers entailed a co-inquiry that caused me to question the applicability of a static teacher learner binary as adult learner uh, will increase le learning will increasingly involve assemblages with machines sharing human-like qualities the field of adult literacy must reflect on how teachers and researchers role roles in disseminating knowledge or best practices are evolving recent research has called for such an approach to understanding digital literacies as peer collaboration and problem solving which has a more distributed power structure. So that transition from teacher learner binary to now maybe a more peer collaboration problem solving. Can you unpack that and maybe kind of what that looks like? Yeah, um, you know, it brings me back to something you you said about Excel and how when you didn't know Excel, you, what was what did you do? You go went and asked yeah. a colleague, right, to help yeah. you. And I think that's often the way. Like a lot of times our technology learning is informal, um, or I should say non-formal. And so yeah, and, and full disclosure, let's, let's just be honest. I didn't ask a colleague. I went and asked my dad who <laughs> has done this before. So I talked to my dad and I sat down with my dad and he walked me through this. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Right? I was like, you went to your who do you call? You're like, let me call a parent. Life and my life. dad was uh, with the technology question, right? About Excel. My dad was so excited that he, that I didn't know how to use Excel to create a budget and he did. And he was so pumped to help. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he was now suddenly in this like teacher role for you. Yeah, oh, we swap roles. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, like that is collaborative digital problem solving right there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also want to give credit for this idea to um, colleagues, mentors, Jill Kastik and Gloria Jacobs, who wrote a JAL article entitled Collaborative Digital Problem Solving. Um, and they, in this article, which really um, has influenced my work and, and kind of how I saw my interactions with Amanda in this lab, um, they talk about like how power can be more distributed when we are working together to solve like these issues and barriers that come up with technology, right? Um, and, and so again, it's like, that's what I think learning technology often looks like is like just coming, going to your dad or going to a coworker, <laughs> going to a friend, um, and asking for help, you know, in a non-formal way, kind of when we need it. Yeah. Cause I want to just randomly talk to my dad, say, dad, can you just sit down on Saturday and show me how to use Excel? Like I wouldn't do that until I was faced with a real kind of authentic problem in my life that, that I need to help on. And I think with technology, it's so large right and what will what we will have to kind of use technology for is is often unknown until kind of we're in that situation and so um whether it's job seeking or budget creation i think once we're in that situation that's where that's where we really kind of can take up and and and, and learn it right it's hard to learn it you can't learn everything prior sometimes you have to learn it in the moment and then it becomes really centered on problem solving i have this very specific problem like i need to find a job or i need to create this budget and um, let's sit down and kind of work on solving this very specific problem that requires technology to help us solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And I think another way, so there's just the the sort of like the skill, right, of, of like learning, like, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? But then I think there's also, you know, when you're dealing with like today's technological world, 
a lot of like these kind of predatory or like quasi problematic sites, like the, the email that Amanda got. Um, and, and that entails kind of a different level of problem solving of like this dialogue around like, well, Hey, what do you make of this? Should I click on it? What's going on here? You know, who might I contact to like report this, you know, spam or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a whole nother level of like this critical problem solving of like talking about, you know, how power and inequality is showing up um, in these digital spaces as well. Yeah. Um, talk about preying on the vulnerable as far as job seekers and um, spam there. And it is true because that's also something, Jen, that doesn't remain static, right? Like I, I have a notion of what extreme examples of spam, right? But then there's also more subtle. And then um, what spam is now might look different, right, in six months or might look different to a job seeker compared to someone who's in, a, in, another, in another line of work. And it's constantly evolving. So there, um, yes, we can, I think, solve these specific issues as they arise. But there also, I feel like, needs to be some kind of general framework of how we approach technology, being fully aware of some of the dangers inherent with technology and specifically data and your information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm also, I'm just curious about uh, did, what happened with Amanda? <laughs> did she, um, do, do you have, uh, I'm just curious, is, is there, uh, um, was she successful in applying for some jobs? Uh, do you, do, you, do you know the status of Amanda and her job seeking search? Yeah, I think ultimately she did find a job, but it was, you know, it was kind of a long road, um, you know, and I think it like she was an extremely resourceful person, um, but, you know, finding a job that was like suited for her as an older adult was also hard, you know, like the world, the work yeah. world is built for like the young and, and the able-bodied and you know, um, and so like, like finding a place was hard. And I think one thing that that really struck me was like, why is this? I think she was like 69 or 70 years old, Mm -hmm. you know, had worked a long career, lived Mm -hmm. a very productive life. Like, why in our society is this person like needing to, you know, have this income, you know, and rely on like herself? Um, You know, when she had, you know, uh, health issues, you know, she was struggling with. And it's like, what, what is going on in this pandemic, you know, as a society that like Amanda is like trying to find a job and needing a job a, and that like employers are just not, um, set up for, or like welcoming a lot of employers to people like her, you know, um, you know, it was really, it's just like really, really struck me, I think. Um, but but I also just want to um, emphasize like how strong and capable Amanda was and how, um, you know, what a problem solver she was and how much agency she had and kind of working through all these challenges that she encountered. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we're, your study provides a snapshot, right? A very tiny snapshot into Amanda's life, but it, it does bring to question some, uh, bring to mind some questions about some large societal issues. Um, even why, like as a society, we don't, we don't really value as much as we should experiences like Amanda brings experience that older adults bring um, from a, a wealth of experience, both in and out of the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And she was someone that um, like she had held leadership positions. Um, yeah. You know, she was very capable of it. It was just like, how does our society and how does a labor force see like quote unquote, you know, all of us as we age kind of as old, 
quote unquote, we'll all be older adults at some point, you know, right. um, you know, it's very, I think that professionally we, we live in a very ageist society. Yeah. And how much of that is just because of how much emphasis and value we place on digital literacies? Say that again, sorry. Like how much is that because is that a direct, directly related to technology and digital literacies? And we just kind of discriminate against those who we feel don't have strong digital literacy skills? I think that's part of it. Um, I think that's part of it. But also, I think it's also like just just ageism, too. I mean, like we're getting to a point in society where like the Internet has been around, you know, like um, I wanted to mention. uh, So the AARP website crashed because Rolling Stones, Boomer, Superfans we're trying to get tickets. Like this is the world we live in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like older adults, many of them like are tech savvy, but I think yeah. that our society is just like it it has not evolved to the fact that like um past this idea, this very like problematic idea of kind of like these digital immigrants, right? Like that's yeah. not really true and it it was Amanda's literacy practice was really like, very complex and multifaceted, but she was like seen by these um employers I think as like kind of old and unskilled, you know, although yeah. that was like definitely not the case. Yeah. I'm not going to put my dad's business out there, but um, my dad is an, as an, as an older man and um, I went to him on advice on how to use technology. So yeah, I think that's um, ageism. I, uh, yeah, would be unfair in a lot of cases. Um, all right. So th- it's, am I correct? Is this study with a man a part of a larger study that, that you are or? Yes, it was called my dissertation. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So um, yes, it was. She was like one participant of. I think there were like nineteen of them. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the larger dissertation study and what you found out? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. This is like I'm asking you to take three hundred pages and just. Can you just share with me? a thing or two that you found out in the next kind of 60 seconds. <laughs> no, you know, Matt, people just love it when like, seriously, when someone's like, tell me about your dissertation, people just, it's like, no one ever asks you. So I yeah. just am like super excited. Um, so yeah, thank you. Cool. Let me, how long do you have? No, um, <laughs> I, um, you know, I don't want to say that Amanda was like a telling case or a typical case. Cause I don't know that that always exists, but like, I think she was, pretty indicative of like the experiences that many of the adults I worked with had, not all, Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of them really struggled with like these jobs teaching platforms because of getting these confusing emails. Um, You know, I think one thing, another thing that I think came out of it was um, challenges related to resumes um, and kind of um, some issues just related to like, people's literacy practices using platforms like Microsoft Word and just all the like design choices mm-hmm. and formatting and content and considerations about like our identities and lived experiences that go into our resumes. So for example, um, and the barriers, like, you know, if you have gaps in your resume because you were like caring for kids or older relatives, um, you know, how does that look to employers and like, how is a resume kind of this like living history, like this document of like who you are and how you present yourself in the work world, you know? So I think that was like another interesting thing that came out of the study that maybe I didn't get to touch on enough um, in Amanda's article. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cause that resume is just one aspect of your professional identity and it's not who you are. Right. Um, but so many like, yeah, I just think, especially maybe in our profession, 
like if we're trying to do anything like share with me your cv or something as if this is who i am here i am my cv um yeah so where in your opinion where i'm curious about you individually and maybe where you think the field of research should go in this area in terms of kind of what's next what do we need to investigate more kind of where do we go either you personally or, or the field where, where do we go from here john yeah um so personally i'm really interested in this question of like how can we bring these kind of abstract ideas like datafication and algorithms and to some extent even ai like how do we bring them really to life for people um people being kind of older adults who are learning technology without while maintaining some excitement about the digital world, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I don't think that people should not be using technology or not be excited about its affordances, but also I think they need to realize like um, some of the issues that come up for privacy and in terms of, you know, companies collecting data and things like that. Um, and then as a field, I think there's a lot of really rich work going on right now related to technology platforms um, in kind of following like Van Dyke and Gillespie and, um, you know, a lot of, uh, scholars are kind of focusing on that, like socio-material perspective around, um, you know, platforms as kind of front end and back end, uh, infrastructures, um, that really affect, you know, our digital experiences and our, and our lives even in, and kind of like, um, you know, it's been called like a post-digital society and kind of problematizing this, 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 dichotomy or this binary of like offline online as well um so yeah it's just like a really um i feel fortunate to be part of this body of scholarship now with this jaw article yeah no it's cool and i appreciate your work i appreciate um the value it brings and in, in looking at especially the uh, kind of the adult audience in terms of literacy and yeah this idea of technology platforms they're not they're not going away and they're not going to stop being invasive and they're not going to stop requesting data so uh, this is ongoing, I think, important work. So I appreciate that you're part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jen, thank you for spending some time and talking about your article. Again, a reminder uh, that your article is linked in the show notes. I encourage everyone, if you haven't yet, to check it out and read it. Uh, and Dr. Jennifer Coburn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>